As, uh, <clears throat> as Joey said a moment ago, my name is Travis Wusso, if I haven't met you, and I'm one of the members here at, at Restoration Church. And you can go ahead and turn your Bibles to uh, Luke 24. Uh, we're going to look at a couple of other passages today, but our, our main passage is, is going to be uh, that passage at the end of Luke 24, the, the famous passage, Jesus' appearance on the road to Emmaus. Um, I asked Nathan if I could do uh, a sermon on uh, you know, New Year's resolutions and crafting, you know, some good goal setting. I've got some great content on that. Um, he was a little iffy about it. He said that uh, something about it needing to connect to the Bible. I told him that I had some really great stats on how, like, on the sixth day of January, how many people have already given up on their New Year's resolutions. But he, he, he said, uh, no, let's, let's stick with the Word, which is okay. What, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk through one of my favorite uh, passages in the Bible. I'm sure it's, it's many of your favorites. As well, and even though we aren't going to be talking about New Year's resolutions, what what this passage talks about is um, our relationship to the Scriptures and its role uh, in each of our lives. And so, you know, I imagine if if you're anything like me, um, in the first week of January and over New Year's, taking stock of 2018 and, and looking forward to 2019, the Scriptures and our relationship with them, our interaction with them, how often we pick them up, is something that has been on my mind. I imagine it's something that's been uh, on your mind as well. And so here's what we're going to do today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start out by talking about some of the context of, of Luke 24. I just want to be careful because we haven't, uh, we haven't been in this book, so I don't want to just pick it up cold. And then I'm going to make, we're going to work through the passage. I'm going to make three main points. The scriptures point us to Jesus, the scriptures stir us to worship, and the scriptures fill our voices with the gospel. We'll conclude by asking how each of these uh, three ideas apply to our lives. But let me start out by uh, reading our passage for us. I'm going to pick it up in verse 13 if you're following along. <clears throat> that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all of these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a mighty prophet indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see, this angel they did not see. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, O foolish one, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, uh, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the night and the day is now far spent. And he went in to stay with them. And while he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while, while he opened the scriptures? And they rose that, that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven 
And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how, it was, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning, this first Sunday of 2019, and we thank you for this last year and all of the blessings that you gave us uh, this last year. God, we thank you for the ways that your hand moved in our lives and in our families and in our church, God, in ways that we could see and in ways we could not see. And Lord, we thank you for the fresh sense of optimism that a new calendar year seems to bring. And I pray this morning that you would help us to see that only through Jesus is the slate wiped clean, that we cannot trust in ourselves, but that we can trust fully in you. Open our eyes and our minds this morning, stir our hearts, and by the power of your Spirit, transform us to look more like Jesus today. Amen. All right, so as, as I mentioned, I want to start with just a little bit of, of context. Of, of uh, I'll start with Luke and then look at the passage that immediately comes before um, our passage in the road to Emmaus. So Luke, was uh, he was a Gentile. He was a companion of Paul. He was from Antioch. He was an educated man. He was a physician. Um, Luke was a second-generation Christian, meaning he, he didn't witness Christ firsthand. He was told about uh, the things of Jesus by those who had seen it uh, uh, firsthand. Um, and one of the key themes uh, that, that runs through Luke's gospel is, this, is the arrival of the kingdom of God. And Luke's presentation of Jesus is as this promised king of that kingdom. And we're going to see that theme uh, work its way uh, through uh, Luke's gospel. Immediately before our passage in the road to Emmaus, you know, so where we, where we pick up the story is, uh, is, the, is that there's two of them uh, that are on their way uh, to Jerusalem. But immediately before that is, uh, obviously, the, the crucifixion happened, Jesus is buried, uh, and then uh, and then we pick up on verse 1. And I'm going to read this, this, uh, this passage, the first 10 verses, or first 12 verses of Luke 12. But on the first day of the week, this is the third day, at early dawn, they, these are, Luke tells us earlier, these are the women who had come with him to Galilee, went to the the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed by this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and, all to, and to the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women who were with him who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them to be an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So it's the third day. And Mary and Johanna and Mary, the mother of James, had just been to the tomb. And, and in the end, it's only Peter uh, who takes what, uh, what the, the testimony of these women uh, seriously. Um, Peter believing that, that some, something about what these women had said uh, must have been true. He goes to the tomb. He sees things just as the women had described, and um, uh, uh, and he and he comes home. Now we we aren't told exactly, you know, whether whether Peter believes that this happened. We're only told that he goes away, marveling. And another one of Luke's themes that runs throughout uh, his gospel is this is is related to the nature of the kingdom of God. It's what we might call this the great reversal. This is the idea that the first become last and the last become first. 
the rich become poor and the rich, uh, the rich become poor and the poor uh, become rich, that the, the proud are, are humbled and that the humble are exalted. And we see here, even in the way that Luke tells the story, um, the, f- the first evidence that, that Luke gives us of the resurrection of Jesus is the testimony of a group of women. Uh, Luke takes care to give us their names, and while nobody else believed their testimony, with the lone exception of Peter, Luke apparently took his testimony seriously. He reported it in his gospel. Um, and he gives, us their, he gives us their names, Mary Magdalene, Johanna, and Mary the mother of James. He tells us what they had to say. Um, he included it here in order to strengthen our faith, in order to persuade us that, that Jesus had indeed risen from the grave. And so by the time that Luke was writing down his own gospel, this sort of great reversal was already underway. Uh, Luke's own theological commitments about who women were and their trustworthiness, their equality before God, the dignity of the voice, Luke's own theological ideas about women had already been transformed in some ways. But going back to our story back in, in A.D. 33, Three days after the death of Jesus, the mood of Luke's account in this conversation on the, on the road to Emmaus is one of uncertainty, it's one of tension, um, but hope is starting to shine through the horror of the crucifixion. So getting back to our passage, Luke's account is set in Jerusalem, but this, this story that we're going to follow is sort of a brief excursion um, uh, from Jerusalem to follow two of Jesus' followers out of the city and into a village called Emmaus, which is about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. Now, we don't know much about these two folks. Uh, one is named Cleopas. The other, his companion, is unnamed. Uh, because Luke gives, uh, gives his readers Cleopas' name, I think we can assume that his readers must have known or understood uh, who, who Cleopas was. He, w- he would have been known to his readers, but his biography uh, has, been, uh, has been lost to us. It's been lost to history. We don't know anything else about him. We also don't know much about Emmaus, interestingly. Scholars disagree about where, about where this town was. The word means hot spring or warm spring and could refer to a few different places around Jerusalem. But what we do know is that Cleopas and his companion were forlorn and they were on their way out of Jerusalem. They were engrossed in their conversation. While they were talking uh, to each other, uh, a man draws near to them and starts walking along with them. And Luke tells us that this man is Jesus himself, but Cleopas uh, and his companion were kept from recognizing him. Now, what, are, what are we to make of this? Uh, we should note that Luke doesn't say that Jesus looked different, uh, that his figure was, uh, was, was hidden in some ways, but he uses the passive voice uh, to imply that it was God who was doing uh, the keeping of their eyes uh, from recognizing him, the obscuring. The, the text says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So uh, Cleopas and his companion didn't recognize Jesus, but we, you and I, the readers, were in the know, and, and we're waiting to find out what, what's going to happen. So Jesus tells them. Jesus asks them a question. What's, what's going on? Uh, what's, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you talk? And as you note, the question itself just stops them dead in their tracks, and their, their faces um, are the answer to the question. They, the, the text says that they, they were looking sad. Um, and they stand there for a minute. Um, and as I said, the answer is, is painted all over their faces. And it's Cleopas who breaks the silence. And he breaks it, interestingly, with an insult. He's asked Jesus, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? Fortunately for Cleopas, Jesus is not, doesn't take the insult. Um, and we begin to understand why, his, why their eyes were kept from, from recognizing him. It's so that Jesus could draw them out in this conversation, so that he could... Uh, could see what was on their minds, and so he would have the opportunity to to have this conversation with them. Uh, we also learned that Jesus' crucifixion was a significant event 
uh, in Jerusalem. It was not something that happened in, in, in obscurity. But Jesus plays dumb, and so he asks them to explain what happens. And so they respond to Jesus, and, 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 uh, and they say this. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. So what did these, what did these guys say? Basically three things. They told Jesus that, that Jesus, told Jesus that Jesus was a mighty prophet before God, before men. We shouldn't, and I don't th- think we should see this term prophet as, as negative or diminutive. Um, uh, because they also indicated that they thought that Jesus was the Messiah, well, the one to redeem Israel. We'll come back to that in just a minute. They also indicated that it was the third day since these things had happened. And it's not clear whether they're remembering uh, that Jesus had said he would rise on the third day or whether they were saying, look, it's been three days. We kind of gave it a couple days to see what would happen. Nothing's happened. We're headed home. Um, I think based on the way that they're acting, it's, it's, it's more likely the latter. And they made pretty clear that even though there had been some funny business uh, at the tomb, they were not holding out hope that things were, were going to turn around. They were headed home. And so as we'll see in a moment, even though they had rightly hoped that Jesus would be the Redeemer of Israel, they had an incomplete picture of what that meant. Now, this word that Luke uses to dis, uh, uses for, for Redeemer is connected to the Exodus, the, the, the Passover, the, the Exodus of the Jews uh, from Egypt and, and into the Promised Land. In Exodus 6.6, God is telling Moses that what he, is, what he is about to do in bringing Israel out of Egypt. And God says to Moses, therefore, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, this, this word redeem is translated from the Hebrew into the word that Luke uses here uh, uh, in, uh, in, our, in our passage. And so clearly this could have, you know, in, in describing... Uh, in describing Jesus as a redeemer or a re- or a ransom, uh, you know, could have reached for a number of different words, but the fact that he the fact that he reached for this one tells us something about Cleopas and his theology. It tells us something about what he was expecting the Messiah to be and and something uh, to do. Apparently, Cleopas and his companion, and and by extension, the rest of Jesus' disciples expected an exodus from Rome. Uh, they were looking for a political Messiah, and so they were bewildered by what had happened. They didn't see that the great reversal that Jesus had been preaching for the last three years had implications for the ministry and the work of the Messiah as well. That Jesus would overcome sin and death through suffering and through humiliation. And they had missed the spiritual dimension of what Jesus was doing and what he had already accomplished. So let's continue. Let's, let's come back to our passage. So remember, they, they have uh, Jesus asked them what's happened, and they give their answer of, of their understanding of the things that happened. And so what we get in verse 25 is Jesus' rebuke. And Jesus says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the things of the scripture, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So this brings us to our first point, that all of the scriptures point to Jesus. Jesus offers a sharp rebuke to Cleopas and his companion. Even though they recognize that Jesus was the redeemer of Israel, they get no pat on the head for that. They're called fools um, because they had missed the spiritual dimension um, by placing their hope on the political. 
Jesus says it was necessary that the Christ would suffer rejection and execution. Without that part of the story, the Christ wouldn't be the Christ. The Redeemer wouldn't truly be the Redeemer. And that's not to say that there isn't a physical, there is not a political dimension to Christ's work. Of course there is. Um, some of this work has already been done. Some of it is yet to be done. Jesus is coming back after all. And in the end, there will be a new Jerusalem that comes down uh, from the sky to complete all of our hopes. To Jesus will wipe every tear uh, from our eyes. Our hope for a restoration of our relationships with each other, of our relationship uh, with creation, those, those hopes will be realized, but they have not yet been. But after asserting that, that the Messiah must suffer, Jesus backs it up. He backs up his, his claim. How? By going to the Scriptures and beginning with Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, going all the way to the end of the Old Testament. Jesus, Jesus so, shows Cleopas and his companion all of the things concerning the Messiah. Jesus gives them the full picture. I mean, I have to say it. Now, that is a conversation I would have liked to be a part of. Um, frankly, I would have liked for Luke to just give us a couple more details about what happened. I mean, you know, the, we don't get any references, you know, no quotes. I mean, we just kind of skip to the next piece. Um, I think part of this is because Luke, Luke must think he's already done this with his gospel. He spent the last 23 chapters demonstrating that Christ is the king of a promised kingdom. How does he do that? By showing us uh, that, that Christ is the fulfillment of the promises uh, made in the Old Testament. And I think this is kind of interesting because we don't really think of Luke's gospel as being particularly Jewish. After all, Luke was, was himself a Gentile. But he, as a Gentile, still saw the Old Testament scriptures as being so significant that the climax of his resurrection account occurs on this moment right here. When, there, when, when two of Jesus' followers' eyes are open and they see, oh my goodness, Christ is the, Christ is the Messiah, Christ is the King. We just, we just didn't understand what this King would look like. So, you know, so what do we, what do we think Jesus' answer was? Like, how, how do we think that conversation went? Obviously, we can't be for sure, uh, but I think we can be sure that they had a fairly long conversation. A couple weeks ago, uh, during Nathan's last sermon before his sabbatical, Nathan traced this story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, and I think it's, it's, if you missed it, it's worth going back to listen. Um, and what Nathan told us is the Bible tells one big story. It's the story of God creating everything. It's the story of him creating humanity, the, the centerpiece of creation in his own image. Um, it's a story of, of his special creation rejecting him. Um, in, in response, it's the story of God choosing not to destroy them, um, to destroy us, uh, but to rescue us from ourselves and from the evil one. And it's a story of God doing this by, by calling and nurturing uh, and protecting and preserving a people uh, for himself, and it's the story of of God uh, promising to send from this one special family a king uh, who would rescue not just that family, but all the families of the earth. And we know what the Bible promises is that this king will fix everything that's wrong in the end. When we sinned, our relationship with each other was broken, and strife and murder and hatred entered the world. And this king, the Bible tells us, is going to fix that. We're going to we're going to beat our plowshares. Our, sword, our, our swords into plowshares. Um, and when we send our relationship with creation was broken, our, our work now comes with sweat and with toil. Uh, nature itself rebelled against us, and this king is going to fix that too. The, the lion will lay down with the lamb. But our king also breaks, our sin also breaks our relationship with God. We were sins and we became rebels. And because of that rebellion, we deserve to be cast out. And what Cleopas and his companion had missed is that this, uh, this king came to fix that brokenness too. 
This king will fix and accomplish this through a sort of spiritual exodus, not by leading his people out of Rome and into the promised land, but by becoming the Passover lamb himself and dying on our behalf so that God's people, you and me, would be passed over so that we would be spared. And so even though the disciples missed it at first, this part of the story also runs through the Old Testament. Nathan covered some of it, but but I want to just touch on a couple of passages. And we don't even have to go very far. In the third chapter of, of the first book of the Bible in Genesis 3, we see that after Adam and Eve sin against God, God has a word for the serpent, the one who had tempted Eve to sin in the first place. And I'll pick this up in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. God promises Satan that despite man's rebellion, one of Eve's offspring would be victorious over him and his schemes and would crush his head. But this offspring would not come out of this encounter unscathed. In defeating Satan and death, this offspring's heel, this offspring himself would be, would be bruised. The Psalms contain too many examples of this sort of dual image of, of, uh, of the coming king, the victorious king and the suffering king to cover today, but I just want to touch on a couple. Um, Many of these come from David, who was self-conscious of the fact that the Redeemer, the, the true and better David, if you like, uh, was going to come from Islam. It would be connected from him. And here in Psalm 41, uh, verses 8 and 9, we have a prophecy that points to this rejection and betrayal of this future king. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him, and he will not rise from where he lies. Even though my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Of course, this is looking forward to the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And here's another, Psalm 118, not written by David, but that Jesus associates himself with in Mark's Gospel. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. In verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus saw that the rejection by the builders was an essential ingredient, an essential component of the work that the Messiah had come to come, had come to do, and finally, one of the most passages about this suffering servant king Isaiah fifty three, the prophet Isaiah writes, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that he we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one with whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. There are, there are so many other places throughout the Scriptures that we could look to, in Psalms, in Deuteronomy, in Zechariah. Uh, but the point here is that the Bible is one story. It's one singular story. It's a story about Jesus. Um, the Bible is not primarily a book of rules. It's not primarily a blueprint for life. It's not primarily... Uh, a group of heroes that we need to copy or emulate. It's one singular story about Jesus. And I, I can't think of a better place that illustrates this idea than chapter 1 of, of Sally Lloyd-Jones' beloved uh, Jesus Storybook Bible. And I, I, I didn't even realize it was going to be Kids Sunday, but you know it's, it's kind of fitting. Um, and so I've, I know I've just read a lot, but bear with me. This is, this, this is truly one of the most amazing couple pages um, uh, I know about. God wrote, I love you. And he wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. 
And he wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he's like, to help us to know him, to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims, the way a duckbill platypus is goofy. And God put it into words too, and he put it in a book called the Bible. Now some people think that the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. Now the Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible mainly isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. And other people think that the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it. But as you'll find out, most of the people in the Bible at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. And at times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life because you see the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children has come to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell the story. At the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see the beautiful picture. Uh, Andrew Peterson, who is a Christian musician from Nashville, um, uh, has a tradition of reading this this story uh, to his kids on Christmas morning, and he said, and and uh, he's he's written that this story, remembering uh, the magnitude of of this of this book and and all the things it has to tell us, has a way of of warming us deep in our bones. And that idea, I think, serves as a helpful transition back into our passage in Luke. Uh, and to my second point, which is much shorter than the first, don't worry. Um, and uh, the third one is also short, um, which is that Scripture should cause us to worship. So if you remember in our story, Jesus has, has just rebuked Cleopas and his companion, and, and he has interpreted uh, to them in all of the Scriptures the things concerning uh, himself. And so picking up the story... There, what Luke tells us is that they draw near to the village when they're going, and, and Jesus acts as if they're going further, but they urge him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for uh, it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. And so Jesus went in with them, and while he was at table with them, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and suddenly they recognized him. And then he vanishes from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us? when he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures. So after Jesus' purpose is accomplished in, in, in obscuring his identity uh, from these two people uh, and, from, and from allowing them to see who they really is, their, their conversation is now complete. He opens their eyes, and then, poof, he just vanishes. Um, Luke, is, Luke is telling us that something supernatural has happened. He, you know, he, Jesus wasn't a ghost. He picks up the bread. He hands it to... Uh, he hands it to uh, his companions. He's a part of the same physical universe, but because of the resurrection, the rules for Jesus within our physical universe are now are now somehow different. And so, you know, you can imagine, you know, Cleopas and his companion are just sitting stunned at the table and reflecting on what just happened. And, and notice what they say. They say, ah, should have known. Did not our hearts burn within us 
when he opened to us the scriptures. But what's interesting about this is that it wasn't the meal or even the presence of Jesus uh, that made the difference. That's not what they reflect back to. That's not what they refer to. It was seeing Christ in the scriptures. That's the thing that was memorable to them about this whole experience. What was it about, about having the scriptures open to them, do you think, that, that made their hearts burn? Let's, let's step back and remember what they'd been through. You know, Cleopas and his companion were, were living in first century uh, Palestine, uh, in Judea, province of Rome. It had been 400 years uh, since the last prophet had come to Israel. There had been 400 years of total silence. Uh, whereas before there had been prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger, but here there had been four centuries of nothing until Christ, until Jesus comes onto the scene. Cleopas and his companion have followed Jesus for some time. We don't know exactly how long, but they'd followed him for some time. They'd listened to his teachings. They'd followed him to Jerusalem. There's a good chance that they'd been among the rest of the, the crew who was up on the Mount of Olives just a little bit more than a week before, uh, laying down their cloaks, putting down branches uh, as, a, as a way to, to welcome their king into Jerusalem while he was seated on a, on a donkey, on a, on a foal, just as the prophets uh, had promised. They were thinking, they must have been thinking, finally, we will be out from underneath the thumb of Rome and the son of David will sit on the throne in Zion again and will restore his kingdom. Jesus had gone earlier that week into the temple and cleansed it, just as the prophets had foretold. Jesus had taught with authority in the synagogue, in the temple, and his followers had grown. What the prophets had promised, it seemed, was starting to come true. And then he was betrayed, arrested, and crucified, just like that. Remember that when Jesus asked them on the road what they were talking about, the question itself stopped them dead in their tracks. I mean, they, they, they couldn't keep their feet moving and think about um, how to respond to Jesus in that moment. They must have been wondering if they had misread the signs, if they, you know, they'd waited in Jerusalem for a few days to see if something was going to happen. Obviously, they'd, they'd, they'd given up and decided to go back home. Uh, they must have wondered if the 400 years of silence was going to continue. And they must have wondered if, if, if God was really in this at all, if they could really trust him with their lives. And then Jesus showed them that the problem wasn't with whether the scriptures were true, or the problem wasn't with uh, whether Jesus was the Messiah, or, or even whether God could be trusted. The problem was with them. The problem was with, with who they were expecting the Messiah to be. And all of this helped them see the truth that God can be trusted, that his word is sure, uh, that, he, that he will make good on his promises, and best of all, that Jesus was and is the Redeemer of Israel, just as they had dared to hope earlier this week. See, the truth of the Scriptures had made their heart burn. It, it had made them worship. It wasn't just that they were sad and then they were happy. It was that they had seen the promises, uh, that, that God made good on His promises, and they had come to believe again that God could be trusted. Their worship had been restored. And worship like that transforms us. It changes the way we see the world. It also changes the way we live. This brings me to my last point that I want to draw out of this passage, which is, that the Scripture fills our voices with the Gospel. So Jesus vanishes from their sight. They realize that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, that He is risen. And let's see what is the first thing that they do. Verse 33, And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven who were there with them and gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told him what had happened on the road and how He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The first thing that they do is, is they get up that very hour and go tell the eleven disciples. Now, before we skip over this, you know, of course, well, they get up and they go share the message. Let's remember where they were. They'd already made it all the way to Emmaus. That's a seven-mile journey uh, uh, from 
uh, from Jerusalem. Um, they'd already made it there. And so, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, scholars debate where the exact location of Emmaus is. Some might say many scholars think that it's sort of to the west of, of Jerusalem. But regardless of where Emmaus was, any Jewish person living anywhere in Israel, if they were talking about going to Jerusalem, the, the, the phrase that they would use is they would say, we're going up to Jerusalem. Why? Jerusalem is a mountain. <laughs> it's a big mountain. Uh, Katie and I lived in Jerusalem a couple years ago, and we would take this this bus, which is called the Sharut. It's like an eight-seater bus uh, to the airport. It was a really cheap way to get to the airport. And uh, you kind of go like west uh, out of the city, down the mountain, and, and to Ben-Gurion, which is on the coast. And I'm telling you guys, as soon as we would get in that bus, I would close my eyes and pray. Because as soon as we started going down the mountain, I mean, it was totally, I mean, the shrewd drivers were crazy anyway, but I mean, there, you know, if the brakes went out, I mean, we were all, we were all toast. For whatever reason, the shrewd would also, you know, we would often have, you know, ultra-Orthodox religious Jews, you know, so I was always thankful for that because I'd be sitting next to a guy and I'm sitting here, we're both praying kind of in our own way, you know, it's just, anyway, make, praying that we'd make it to the airport. The point is, the point's this. The seven miles would, would have not been an easy journey by bus. I, I cannot imagine what it would have been like um, on foot going back up, uh, back up that mountain. Remember what time of day it was. Uh, they had they were sitting down for dinner. I mean, the, the the lure to get Jesus to come into their house was that look, it's already late. You just come stay with us. It's, there's no point in going any further. Um, so what they were deciding is in the middle of dinner, walking another seven miles up a mountain, hiking up a mountain, really. Um, in the night, you know, if you remember the story of the of the Good Samaritan, this isn't the the road to Jericho, but all of the roads around Jerusalem at that time were dangerous. Um, anytime you're outside of a walled city, walking around at night, it was dangerous. Um, but after walking seven miles and tucking into their dinner, they decide, you know what, this this message is too important to share, and so they decide to journey seven miles back up to Mount Zion in the dark. I think it would have been reasonable to wait until morning. But the news that they had to share was too important and couldn't wait. All right, so we've, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. What we've seen is, is these three things. The Scriptures, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, they point us to Jesus. Point two, the Scriptures stir our hearts to worship. And point three, the Scriptures fill our voices with the Gospel. And what, we're, what I want to do now as is, is we're, is we're closing is to ask what this means for our lives. I've got three applications for you. Here, here they are up front. First, we need to saturate our lives with the Scriptures. Second, we need to worship Jesus through the Scriptures. And three, we need to share these Scriptures with our neighbors. The message of the Bible is, is simple, but it's also complex. We, we all know deep in our bones that we aren't who we know we should be. We know that deep in our bones that things are not right in the world around us. And the Bible tells us the story of God sending His Son to come and live the life that none of us had the strength or the willingness to live, to die the death that you and I all know we deserve to die, and to rise again that we might live with God in heaven forever. This is a, it's a simple message. Um, but at the same time, the, the Scriptures are an amazingly complex piece of literature, combining the writings of dozens of writers who wrote over several thousand years, interacting with each other in interesting ways. Uh, and a friend of mine likes to say that the Bible is like an ocean. You know, there, there are beaches where even a child can play, but there are depths to which no one, uh, can, can go. Um, 
The Bible is, 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 tells us this big story that we all know uh, that we need. And as we learn from Luke, Moses and all of the prophets tell the story of our risen king and promises return. So the Old Testament, this, this first testament, can be intimidating. But remember that when Cleopas and his companion were, were walking along the road from Jerusalem uh, to Emmaus, there were no writings from Paul at that time. Uh, the scriptures were just the Old Testament. That's all there was then. And that testament was sufficient to illuminate in their, in their eyes and in their minds uh, the person and the, and the coming and the return of Christ. So what does this look like in our lives? You know, what, 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 should, what, what does it look like for us to saturate our lives with the Bible? Um, one of the most important texts in the Old, excuse me, in the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy 6, uh, 4-9, we receive a command from God about the place that the Scriptures should, should have in each of our lives. And I'll read it for us. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. All right. So can we distill from this passage... Uh, a command for a daily devotional time of 45 minutes that happens you know, between this hour and this. Of course not. Um, but I think what, what we see from the Scripture and what we see from this passage is the idea that our lives should be utterly saturated by His Word. Uh, whatever that looks like in your stage of life. I mean, with young kids, it's going to look different than if you're single, and that's going to look different if you have medium kids. Um, you know, I don't know. Um, but the point is, each of us has to answer that question honestly and 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 look at... You know, look at a passage like Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, and ask, you know, what, what does it look like uh, for me right now uh, that, you know, when I'm walking by the way, his word is, is so present in my mind that it's, that it's on my lips. So we need to saturate our lives with the scriptures. Now, is that an end in and of itself? Of course not. This brings us to our second, second application, which is to worship God, to worship Jesus through the scriptures. Remember the response that Cleopas and his companion had when Jesus opened their eyes to the fullness of scriptures and, and that all of the scriptures testified uh, to the Messiah. What they said was, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? Now, does this happen for us every morning? Probably not always. Um, our desires become misplaced. Our sin uh, clouds and, and distorts what we love and what we care about. The cares and worries of the world, they distract us, they ensnare us. Um, and indeed, I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that all the forces of darkness, all the frailty in our, in our flesh are conspiring to keep us as far away as they can from, from this Word. So what can we do if we, if we don't love the Word and if our worship is dry? I mean, there are so many different ways to, to answer this question. But let's look back at our text and let's, let's consider what Cleopas and his companions said to one another. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? What fueled Cleopas and his companions' worship? They saw things in the scripture that they'd never seen before. They looked more closely than they'd ever seen. And what did they see? They saw Jesus in the scriptures in places that they, that they hadn't expected to find him. Um, and I'm not talking about head knowledge here. Um, remember that, that Jesus' teaching restored Cleopas' faith in God and the Messiah. And consider... You know, this, this text that we just looked at, Deuteronomy 6, 
God isn't making a command here to, to learn and to study. The, the first few verses are, are laden with heart language. Let me read it again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, uh, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command to you today shall not be on your head. They shall be on your heart. God is after our hearts, not just our heads. And the Scriptures are the means by which He's revealed Himself to us and proved uh, prove to us that we can trust Him. That's a, that's a heart question. Can we really bank our whole lives on God? That's a heart question. And so we need to approach the Scriptures in the same way and not let our study terminate up here, but let it percolate down to our hearts. We need to see uh, and, and strive to see Jesus throughout uh, this 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 book because he is the ultimate fulfillment fulfill, fulfillment of all the brokenness and all the emptiness and all the darkness that we experience in our hearts and in our lives. So we need to take that extra step to see him, and I think also to praise God and to worship him uh, in prayer. So we need to saturate our lives with the scriptures. We need to to uh, we need to worship God through the scriptures, and then last is we need to share the scriptures with our neighbors. Remember the urgency with which Cleopas and his companion carried the message of Jesus' appearance on the road to Emmaus back to Jerusalem. And they rose that same hour and returned. It's not even like they even thought about it. You know, so of course, of course we're going to go, go back to Jerusalem. They risked their lives to bring that message back to the apostles. Do we look at the good news with that same kind of urgency? Uh, we can't wait to share it with those who need it, that we, we see the brokenness and, and, uh, and and despair around us and and recognize their longing and so we're eager to bring this word to them? Of course not. I think uh, evangelism, sharing our faith, disciple making, it can seem overwhelming. And so if you're looking for a place to start, let me encourage you to just think about this. Just share one thing that you read in the Scriptures with one person this week. That's it. Just one thing that you read in the Scriptures with one person. Point people back to the word. What does this look like? I mean, it, it's as weird as you make it, I think. Um, you know, sharing, sharing proverbs, sharing wisdom is, is a good place to start. You know, if you, if you read a, a, a proverb and, and, you know, you find a way to shoehorn that or to mention it in a conversation, that's, that's an easy, non-threatening way. You could, a little more advanced and scary, you could tell a friend something that, that you read in the scriptures that encouraged you be, be vulnerable with them. You know, one of the interesting things we we Katie and I did this all the time in 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 Jerusalem is you're you know you're sort of talking about politics or talking about whatever, and you know they sort of mention an idea and say, well, you know, actually, do you know where that idea comes from? It comes from the Bible. You know, that's that it's not just you know Western uh, you know Western liberalism. This this, is, this actually comes from here. Um, so that, so that's the idea. One person, or one one thing that you've read in the scriptures with one person this week. If you're afraid about this, I, I am confident it will not be as bad as you think. Um, all right, so, so that's it. What have we learned today? We learned three things. The Scriptures point us to Jesus. Second, the Scriptures stir us to worship. Third, the Scriptures fill our voices with the Gospel. And what does this mean for us? This means that we need to saturate our lives with the Scriptures. It means that we need to worship God through the Scriptures, and we need to share the Scriptures with our neighbors. In other words, read God's Word Worship God, tell people about the gospel. In some ways, the Christian life is really not that complex. Um, it doesn't mean that it's easy. And I think, as anyone who, can, who has been trying to do these three things for any amount of time can tell you, it is, it is not. And we need, even in this, God's intervention uh, into our lives, into the details, I think, of our lives. 
And the good news is, as we've been talking about today, God's intervention into our brokenness and into the details of our lives is exactly what He's been promising to do for us, even from the very moment that we rebelled. Pray with me. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for promising to send Your Son Jesus to us. Thank You that You are trustworthy. Help us to see that we can trust You because of Your Word and because of Your promises and because You are, as Joey prayed earlier, the the keeper of the covenants that You made with us. Lord, prevent that knowledge from terminating in our hearts, God. God, cause us to see You for who You are. God, help us to see Jesus in in the Scriptures. Help us to to recognize uh, that He is the answer that we're all looking for, God. The 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 solution to all the problems we've ever experienced. And help us to worship You this morning. And Lord, give us a sense of urgency about the importance of this message of the, that that You've given us to given to us in Your Word for the world. Give us the courage, God. Give us the strength and help to carry this message to our families, to our neighbors, and to the end of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.